Hello and welcome to the Untranslatable Podcast. We are here in Prague today. Well, one of us is, and we are doing a very special episode with a fantastic musician, writer, producer, and podcaster, and we're looking forward to bringing that to you today. We will be talking about expat life in Prague, uh, music, writing music, composing music, and I'm sure Jared has plenty of interesting questions for us as well. So without further ado, my buddy Jared, what's going on, Jared? Hello. Hello. It is a special day because it's Blazer Day, which always means special day. But uh, <laughs> first, everyone, please follow us. Instagram, Untranslatable Podcast. Twitter, Untranslatable1, the number one. Email us, untranslatablepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, slide into those DMs. You can give us topic ideas. Untranslatables, which are sayings, idioms, proverbs that don't really make any sense in if you translate them literally, but if you actually say them, then they make perfect sense uh, to the people from that language. Uh, or Song of the Pod ideas. We're going to have a fun Song of the Pod today. Uh, also, five-star reviews, please, on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. Spread a little love. Uh, oh, and we're on YouTube. And um, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> well, thank you, Jared. Thanks so much. So without further ado, I'm very excited and happy to introduce our, de- our guest for today, Steve Walsh, who is a fantastic guitarist, producer, writer here in Prague. And I had the fortune of meeting Steve in October at Umalejo Glena, uh, watching him. And uh, it was a great time. Had the opportunity to talk to him after the gig for a little bit and uh, geek out on guitar and music, which was always a pleasure. So we're very happy to have Steve on and we're excited to hear his story and get some of his wisdom and expertise. Thanks for being on, Steve. You got it, fellas. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you, uh, Chad, did you guys talk about uh, your, our other connection? Not yet, no. So we okay. did an episode with Joanna Jenkins. Yeah, I saw that. A few months ago, which was a blast. She Super is such cool. an amazing woman. Yeah, yeah Joanna rocks. And you played yeah. guitar on her. What was the song we featured, Jared? Uh, Ain't No Color But The Blues. And you were on the video playing guitar, yeah? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, we had the, um, well, different time periods, but my piano teacher was her music teacher when she was in, like, elementary school, I believe. And uh, when I was going to, I visited Chad in Prague a couple months ago, maybe a month or two ago, and I was telling my piano teacher, yeah, I'm going to go to Prague and hang out with my friend. My piano teacher's like, oh, my gosh, you need to give this gift to Joanna Jenkins. She was running around her house finding me a gift to give to Joanna. And then we were talking to her, and uh, Chad mentioned that he, he met you at the concert. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I love Steve Walsh. We're like, oh, wow, small world, all these connections yeah, being made. that's great. So you host the Loud Noises podcast uh, I love it. I think it's great. You have a very good, almost uh, NPR-esque voice. It's very soothing. Thank you. Um, <laughs> what was your uh, motivation to start the podcast? Um, my motivation behind starting the podcast was that I started to notice so often when I was talking to my friends um, who are professional musicians, the types of conversations we would have, it felt like we were exchanging ideas and and you know, life situations, it's felt like what we're talking about right here is the thing that young musicians really need to know about because, you know, we're trying to sort out artistic issues, we're trying to sort out professional issues. And so often for 
reasons that make sense when you're kind of studying music and in that mode you're really just dealing with the music and it and you're not really dealing with like music inside the bigger reality of being a musician in the world and mm -hmm. honestly that's more important than the technical know-how of how to play music yeah i was listening to uh i'm trying to remember what her name was an episode that the last episode not the most recent one mm, probably with uh nadia M Yes, yes. And uh, I really enjoyed listening to her explain not just how she even got into music, but then how like um, different things like aspects such as the visual art came into it and how you have to sort of get out of your head in certain ex ex situations and stop and, and, and believe in yourself in a way, then also challenge yourself in ways that you you initially never even thought you could do. For example, she was talking about the writing of the music and then doing her own visual art for the music and all that stuff. And on a, I'd say, smaller scale, that's something that I think I'm trying to come to terms with as a very new pianist. I've only been playing for maybe three and a half years at this point. But trying to get out of my own way in, in a, certain, a certain extent and, and stop trying to base my progress off what I think I can do and, and rather just do it. Yeah, and, I think I think that's that's something everybody goes through. I, I think that goes beyond music too. And once you right. kinda can flip that script, I think things start to um move forward in a more organic, intuitive way and you start to get you start to progress much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. That that would be that would be nice. What are um some of the hardest parts for you for keeping your podcast going or keeping it fresh? Well, I think I think um I think the biggest challenge and I think this is a challenge of the time we live in is keeping all the balls in the air. Um because before you know, for where I'm at in my life, you know, just doing one of the things that I do used to be somebody's whole thing so it's mm -hmm. besides you know trying to do the podcast market the podcast record edit interview people and that's still kind of a little side project in the grand scheme of everything I do it gets pretty nuts sometimes where um you know I've been thinking about it recently where I'm trying to get up to I don't release my podcast as frequently as you guys do which is amazing how that you're able to get two episodes out a week that's incredible um because i know mostly, it goes, it's mostly this guy over here yeah <laughs> give jared a lot of credit well i know what goes into it so kudos to you um but i think that um as i'm approaching 25 episodes the things that i want to try to move toward in the future is trying to understand i feel like i get enough feedback now about it that it that it's good it can always be better of course but the product, you know, what we're doing is good, and now it's how to implement it better. And that's mm -hmm. going to involve getting some help, because right now I'm doing the whole thing by myself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the idea of getting help as well, but I think there's also a part in me, especially since, like, this is our sort of fun side project that enjoys it being just the two of us doing everything and, and keeping it like that. But there there is at a certain point where... And certain things you kind of have to let go of or give in to help or s different aspects like that. Is it a challenge for you to find uh, good guests? Like, it seems like you have a pretty good network of musicians to pull yeah, from. Yeah, I mean, I probably have, I could probably write a list of the next 50 to 100 episodes if I, you know, of people I would 
would want to talk to. It's just an order of sequencing and, and sure. making it happen. So really, um, you know, I kind of sway between two things because for the most part, everybody, everyone I've interviewed so far is a friend of mine. And there's mm. only been one interview which was with a composer and keyboard player, Patrick Warren, who does um, he does the music for the Showtime show The Shy, and he's played with Fiona Apple and Oh wow. Okay, all, cool. All sort, I mean he does string arrangements for all the big artists and stuff. We have a lot of mutual friends in common, but we actually have never met in person. But that's the only person so far that I don't actually know, you know, mm. who's a friend who I've worked with. So right. um so for me as far as guests and where I'd want to go. That part's easy, and I think part of it, too, is because one of the goals, as I was saying a little bit earlier, is where, particularly where I play guitar, and there's a lot of focus sometimes on the external parts of playing guitar, like the guitars and the gear, and and thinking that the solution is somehow inside of all of those things, mm -hmm. or even inside of, inside of just knowledge about, you know, technical knowledge. Like I was saying, it's about ideas. So for me... Um, I'm interested in talking to all sorts of different types of people at all sorts of different levels. Like, for instance, the most recent episode I did is with a young young guitar player who's Czech who lives in Dublin oh, cool. named Peter Mock. And he um, he's super interesting to me because I met him when I was on tour here playing with um, the bassist Victor Krauss, and he was kind of the support translator person when we were here. And I instantly recognized when we started to talk in this small town in Ditching, which is not far from where you were. Yeah, I've been there before, yeah. Um, it's like, wait a second, you're one of us. You're one of those people. I, I know who you are. You don't maybe totally know it yet who you are, but you're one of these people. Because he was asking, he's like, I think I got accepted to go to Berklee College of Music, and I oh, might cool. do this, or I might do that, and I don't know. And, and from where he is in this smaller town, you're pretty detached from all of these things. But it's like, mm. no, you can do this. It's a stretch, but it's possible. But what he ended up doing is moving to Dublin, and what he does is invite a lot of top um, jazz or improvising musicians over, and he does collaborations with them, and he's built this whole entire life around it. So to me, he's super interesting to me as a younger musician who is manifesting a unique reality for himself and getting to interact with all of these amazing artists from afar, mm -hmm. which is another way to do it as opposed to just moving straight to New York City or... Nashville or Which wherever. is what you did. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of made all of my moves kind of within a gang of people. Okay. Yeah, could we um, just give some context for our listeners out there? <laughs> I know this is a very big question, but if you could give us a quick snapshot into, into your story. You know, you sure. started playing guitar, I think, at, at 12, is that right? Yeah, I started playing guitar when I was 12. Um, I grew up outside of Boston, and... I decided pretty early on, felt like almost immediately, like, this is what I'm going to do. Uh -huh. Almost blindly. That, and I, and I, I guess a lot of friends, young friends from that time mirror that back to me. It's like, you are just, you had a plan. And um, I had a guitar teacher when I was young. And, well, I had two guitar teachers, and they both had gone to Berkeley. Okay. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to go there. So I decided that when I was about 13... Okay. And everything between 13 and 18 that I had to deal with in school became pretty irrelevant. Okay, sure. Because <laughs> yeah. I knew what I was going to do, yeah, which yeah. created some some problems, to say the least. But um, I ended up going to Berklee College of Music in the beginning of the 90s. And 
it was a great time to go there. There were so many great musicians who are doing so many amazing things right now and have been work, you know, in all areas and all aspects of music, which is great. Um, and from there, a natural progression after Boston was to either move to New York City, which was pretty easy geographically, mm-hmm. or to go to Los Angeles. And at that time, people didn't really go to Nashville the way they do now. But now that's become a thing. So I moved to New York City and I lived there from the late 90s till about 2005, where there I learned how to really play with singers. I was playing a lot of singer-songwriter music like the Lilith Fair and all of this stuff was happening. I started to learn how to use a recording studio, compose music. I was composing a lot of music for commercials, Mm -hmm. starting to at night and on the weekends, starting to help artists make records. Oh, cool. Record their own music. So like producing. Producing, exactly. Okay. And I taught myself how to engineer. Um, and that was right at that period where things started to switch from analog to computer. So we're in that uh-huh. that kind of wonky period. Some big switch, right? Yeah, but it was a good time for me. Like, I think the good thing, I'm 48. So the good thing about where I'm at is I got to see the end of the way things were done, like actual real sessions, even if it was just on a jingle or something where you've got to get people in a room and they have to play mm-hmm. together and it's got to be right, and it's yep. got to—it's actually going down, like sitting in a big band or orchestral session for like a Mercedes commercial, and it's like, it has to happen now, and yep. it's got to be right. So that was amazing, and also to get to record and work with and play with a lot of idols um, who lived in New York at the time, and then also with your peers. But around 2005, I was starting to move more into songwriting, and um, I was getting a little burnt out of living in Brooklyn just for lifestyle reasons, and I moved to Nashville, and I lived there until, it's kind of fuzzy, because I was kind of leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back, but I guess I lived there till about 2011, and then I moved to Prague. Right. Okay. And what, what was Nashville like back in those days? It was interesting. In retrospect, um... Nashville was amazing. And Nashville's a really interesting place. Have, have you been there at all? No, that's on my bucket list. It's great. It's it's amazing. Um, I guess the first time I went to Nashville was probably 19... Maybe around 2000, 2001. Okay. I was like, wow, this is really interesting because it's um, it had the same, even more musical density than New York. Because like in New York City, as we all know... This is happening in every field, that kind of density. It's like, what do you do? Well, I'm a, you know, I do flex coding or I'm a investment banker. I play classical music. It's like right. it's all happening. Mm-hmm. Where in Nashville, it's primarily music. Right. And the whole thing revolves around music. So it's a really special place. And in the last 15 years or so, it had been trending away, not trending away from country, but adding other things to it. Okay. And now at this point, so much of the music business has re-centralized itself in Nashville with people coming from Los Angeles or New York, record companies moving out, you know, their main office or their production resources moving them to Nashville, that every type of music you can imagine is happening in Nashville, which is um which is really cool. And there's the most, you know, the most amount of recording studios, right. the largest amount of songwriters, the musicianship you know, where it's interesting because there's parallels between there's parallels and differences between all these major major music centers. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's really interesting about Nashville in particular is people can play the musicians can play 
anything really well, but the real specialness is their ability to play songs, like, you know, common types of songs, common types of chord progressions, terms mm -hmm. with the kind of intensity that people can play jazz on a high level. Oh, cool. Okay. So it's, um, you can walk into a recording session cold, never see meeting. You could maybe not even have met half of the musicians. They put up the music and the speed that things can come together and turn into something is unparalleled. It's incredible. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's that's really so cool. amazing. And now um, there's lots of rock music. There's lots of indie music. There's lots of everything besides the gospel, country, bluegrass, all the things that made Nashville famous. Right. There's everything now. It's incredible. Is it a challenge to, or was it a challenge to go from New York to Nashville and then find a, a, like a, a new music community and, and sort of and start a career there? Or was it more natural than that? Did you just happen to know people there already? I knew a few people when I moved to Nashville. And when I first went there, the thought was to just go for a summer and sublet a place and kind of check it out. Mm -hmm. Um I think that my Nashville experience was a positive one. It was good. I enjoyed living there. I met some really great people, made some good relationships. Um, but on the other hand, I would say maybe a mistake that I made because I was in a publishing deal that was still in New York and I was traveling quite a bit that I don't know if I, from the get-go, built some of the relationships that in retrospect I wish I had built from the get-go there. Okay. And it's really true where, um, like it's interesting, between Nashville and New York, for instance, they're kind of inverse to one another in the sense that New York City is all about new. And people are mm -hmm. really, in my experience, pretty open to taking a risk or taking a chance on something new or mixing it up. Where there, I think part of it is the pace. I think part of it's culture. I think part of it... Um, it's just the way it is, and I think it's actually good, mm -hmm. is people are very nice, and it's easy to meet people, but it takes longer to establish yourself because it's not broken. It's working perfectly fine without you. Right. <laughs> they don't, you know. <laughs> so in, the, in that regard, I think that making that transition from one music community into the Nashville music community, you have to almost reset yourself to the mm. fact that um, it doesn't, it really doesn't matter the things you've done in other places. Mm -hmm. it, it might be interesting, but it actually doesn't hold as much value as you might think it does or okay. want it to, where it's really a starting over regardless. And I think that I was right. kind of in between in my experience in Nashville where in some ways I was starting over and open to the idea of starting over. But I also, at that age and that place in my life, I had some attachments to the things that I'd done and the fact that my publishing deal at the time was still out of New York. And I was kind of in the middle of doing more, um, not necessarily pop, but more rock, pop, less country, but I was doing country and I was a little bit of a hybrid, mm -hmm. which in 2005 was a little bit less common than it is now, where it's definitely mm. more accepted. Does... When you're going to a place like Nashville, uh, when you to to make your own community or or sort of ingratiate yourself into communities, is it is it essentially just going to live music venues and introducing yourself, or is it a little more complicated than that? Not really. Um, I was just having this conversation with 
uh, my partners here at the studio about this. Nashville and Los Angeles are similar in the sense that the music community in Nashville in a lot of ways maybe resembles the acting community in Los Angeles or the comedy community in Los Angeles in the sense Mm -hmm. that because of the density of it and because because of the things that the styles of music that are most popular there have some commercial attachment to it and it's kind of out in the open like it's not a you know it's not like classical music or jazz where it's a little like no one really spends too much time talking about that part that um the whole entire way the city works is set up around the art and commerce concept so right. for instance like a day for a young person starting out in a place like Nashville in terms of like what your dance card could look like and turn turn in terms of lining up opportunities to meet people could look like meeting somebody for coffee at a cafe at 8:30 in the morning that if you look across the cafe almost every table is two producers meeting to catch up an engineer meeting with a new artist mm-hmm. two artists who are friends who are commiserating in the corner you know <laughs> somebody really famous walks through and gets a coffee and is headed off to a big studio uh-huh. it's it's like a campus it's fully integrated so that's, that's so cool that's your 8:30 coffee then generally by nine o'clock you're headed towards whatever you're going to do which is either going to be anything from your day job to a writing session where you're going to get together with another songwriter and try to write a song, mm-hmm. um, which is more of a communal thing. It's not so much about the outcome. It's about finding your people and finding creative configurations that you can write with and create something that's meaningful or to mm-hmm. a recording session and the recording session still by and large run the way they ran in the, you know, fifties and sixties where it's a 10 o'clock session, a one o'clock session, you know, and then again, you know, a five o'clock session or six o'clock session. And um, it's very civilized. There's lunch. Again, you might be catching up with the people you just wrote a song with at lunch or meeting somebody else the afternoon. And then at night, there's kind of two levels of the nightlife because usually right after work, somewhere around six o'clock, there's things called showcases, which are as lawyers managers, record company people are headed home to their families, mm-hmm. they can stop off and see a showcase of someone who's basically showing their goods, so to speak, yeah. and looking to try to um, affiliate somehow. And then there's a late night scene of like gigs and the bars and stuff where it's like somebody's just for fun creative project or something. Mm-hmm. So the opportunities are endless in Nashville to meet people. It sounds like an amazing place. It's really unique. That does also sound a lot like the uh, the comedy community. I listen yeah. to I just listen to a lot of comedians talk, and that sounds like a pretty normal day for a lot of comedians too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then, so yeah, I, I understand that parallel. So then, your next step was coming over here to Prague. Yeah, and that kind of that wasn't necessarily like a clear line that happened. Um, I'd reached a certain point, as I was saying, around 2011, where my time in Nashville was really cool, but I was also kind of missing, you know, like my real people. Mm-hmm. Most of my really closest friends live in New York City. Okay. And a lot of my most longstanding creative relationships and working relationships are there. Mm-hmm. So um, I started to get the itch to go back. And um, 
And through the two or three years prior to this, I've been spending a lot of time in Europe as a songwriter going to London or to Stockholm. Or, and through this period, I have a very close friend who's American who I've been working with in the commercial music world for advertising and for years. Um, he lived here in the 90s, and I, he's a musician. And I started to slowly over time meet some of his musician friends mm -hmm. from the Czech Republic. Okay. And started to slowly... Um, you know, get involved in various projects and helping people with their music. So I had started to come here and I really liked it. And I felt like um, there was an opportunity and I had just started dating the woman who's now my wife. Mm -hmm. We have kids and a family here. I felt like New York is not going anywhere. Right. And at this point in my life, I'm, this is if I were to ever give it a go and try to live in another country, this is the time to do it. So um, at the beginning of the summer, nine years ago, I guess it was, eight years ago, I, m I made the move and did it, and I've been here ever since. And what was that adjustment like, going from New York and Nashville to a place like you know Prague in the Czech Republic? Well... I think that you might be able to relate to me in some ways about this. That in a lot of ways, Prague is, has a lot more in common with a place like Boston or New York City as it does to a place like Nashville, per se. Okay. Because, you know, same like in Philadelphia, these are some of the most European or these are some of the earliest places settled in America mm -hmm. by Europeans. So therefore, culturally, whether it's, a, you know, an Irish or Italian, you know, immigrant community or what, like, I grew up around it. So it's not so esoteric for me. Like my grandparents are first, second generation European immigrants. So it, it wasn't such a um, disconnect for me per se, sure. at least when you look around and look at buildings and look mm -hmm. at, you know, it's different, but like, okay, I kind of get this. And also for me, it wasn't all at once where... I came one summer, I think probably in 2008 or nine for, and made a record. I was here for two months or six weeks. Then I would go, then I would come back. So I had some relationships I had established, and I think that was a great thing with my wife, that um, I didn't move here initially for her uh -huh. because that puts so much stress on a on relationship. relationship. Absolutely. You know, when you don't have any support system of your own established, you're you're placing everything on another person, and that's bound to be complicated. Sure. So, like, I, I, had, a, I had my own relationships and friends and, situate, you know, opportunity. I was playing. I was doing things here. So that, I think it made it much more holistic. <sighs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's very important. If you, I've had some friends who have gone places um, to visit a boyfriend or a girlfriend and then decided to move there and they didn't have much of a plan. And it crashed and burned, so it's definitely good yeah, you the, had... The other person's like, I hope they're going to leave at some point. <laughs> <laughs> right. This right. is hitting a little close to home. It's stressing me out a little bit. <laughs> oh, you're, I'm, you're, I'm, <laughs> your girlfriend will be fine. Jared's actually going to be making the move back to Michigan in a few days. Um, oh, yeah. oh, right on. Yeah, I got a, I got a job there. Um, and uh, my girlfriend is going to be moving with me. Now, luckily, she's not coming until she finds a job. But uh, there is definitely a little pressure on, like, the, like, you know, you're moving for me. And then also, you don't have a friend group here yet. And um, 
I kind of do. So that is a challenge that I've been thinking a lot about recently. So I'm going to try to help and, uh, him out with that a bit. This conversation has not made me feel better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's logic to it, but it's definitely their exception. So. Right. Right. Um. So, moving to all these different places, how how do you sort of either bring your musical knowledge from New York, Nashville, and like to these new places, or how does it become a almost a hindrance in a way? to sort of rely on what you knew from past places? That's a good question. Um, In my experience, it seems that there's kind of two general ways you can kind of come to any situation, which is you try to... um, You try to come to it and see what it is and how it works and kind of get with the program. The good parts of that are you get with the program. Maybe the bad parts about that are you might come off as a little fickle or you're, you know, kind of going with the flow a little bit as opposed Mm -hmm. to kind of maybe a more resourceful approach is building on top of your experiences Mm -hmm. and, um, figuring out how to just re-aim or refocus your experience to bring something to the situation, which I think is very much kind of a, a jazz thinking at its core, the idea of improvising, the idea of... Um, because it can, be, it can become so daunting when you start to look at how many different things there are that you, you can start to feel like you have to get together. It can, it can stop you from doing anything because it can be so overwhelming. Whereas opposed to the idea of like, well, I haven't seen this before, but I've seen something like it. Or, you know, my lens and how I deal with the world is this way and how can I take the, the tools that I have and repurpose them to, you know, make my way in this new situation. So I, th- I think that's more been my situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, does, so have, do you, how's your, uh, how's your check? Yes, I'm an assistier. I'm on the way. Okay. <laughs> I'm, at, I'm at a point where, um, in the beginning, I, I think I speak okay, not so great. People will tell me I speak pretty well. Um, I understand quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best things I did in the beginning was I was really lucky that I got hooked up with a great teacher and she doesn't use any books, any materials. Oh, that's good. And we've um, talked about this, Jared and I, he's learning Spanish right now. And, mm-hmm. uh, he had a book and, you know, me as a language teacher, I've been teaching German for the last four years, English for the last two or three and uh, that was one of the first things I told Jared was, you don't really you don't really need a textbook if if you need to just be able to speak and listen and comprehend. Right, um, I I agree with that, and I think in the Czech language, and it's interesting. I forget where I was listening to this, but it was on a podcast, and it was an uh, interview with a polyglot who spoke seven or eight languages, and he he speaks um, Japanese, Arabic, Hebrew. English, some Romance languages. And he said, when I got to Polish, in Polish and Czech, the words have different meanings. Some are similar, but the basic grammatical system functions quite similarly. similarly. And um, he said, when I got to Polish, it was 
it killed me. You know, <laughs> even, you know, it was so difficult. The hardest thing I'd ever done. And wow. um, the one thing that I was really lucky, really the only document I used with my first teacher was she has, um, actually, I think a student had created it for her, was a complete table of the full grammatic system of the Czech language. So it's like almost like a Rosetta Stone, for lack of a better okay. expression. So basically, you open this up, and it shows you the DNA, like the matrix of how this language works. It's very dry. So like sentence structure and like cases? Every or... case. Okay. Singular, plural. Yep. Masculine, feminine, neutrum. Mm-hmm. And then for everything from verb conjugation, adverb, adjective, everything. Oh, that's amazing. It's a blowout. I'll show it to I you. I could have, yeah, I could have used that yeah, when I came it's, here. It's, it's, oh, an, man. it's, it's it, I mean, it's really, it's heavy. Like you see this and you're like, oh man, yeah, what did I sign up for? But the way, and actually my teacher, she speaks five or six languages. And um, so in the beginning, I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. I had a lot of free time. I kind of took the first little while here and was kind of just enjoying being here. But the first thing I got really serious about studying from the get-go and finding a good, like I had done like a one of these language schools and it's, it's it would take you forever to learn how to speak the language the way they're trying to teach it. Because it's all right. grammar-based, right? Yeah, and it's all based on the book, and it's limited to this experience of the book, and it's also in a group setting, but it's not a group of people that are kicking your butt. It's a group of people that run the gamut from they were in the pub until 4 in the morning to they're only going to live here for two months, and someone's right. making them do that, to someone who's really like, i got to get it together. Like, you know, you, you really want to be in a... You want to be in a pressure situation. So these one-on-one lessons with this woman were incredible because she would never switch to English unless the place caught on fire. And she (laughs) had the patience of having you work the problem until you could figure it out. Oh, cool. That's very rare in a lot so, of teachers. So, you know, it was it it would be brutal. It was brutal, you know, the Yeah, that sounds stressful. It it would but it was really great. So, um mm-hmm. like my ability to write is pretty good. Um which a lot of people learn to speak but their writing's terrible. Right. Um and then it all derailed about 4 years ago when we started the studio here and my first son was born. And it's just like I've been in damage control. I've been on defense ever <laughs> since. So, it's just, you know, it is what it is. But we've recently moved out of Prague about an hour and 15 minutes or so. Although people there can speak English, it's even less than there is in Prague. And I'm looking forward to, like, taking it to the next level. Because it's really, I, I've always felt like if you cannot speak the language of where you live on a functional level, you're not having a full experience. You're preaching to the yeah. choir here at our podcast because that's one of the things we really try to stress. And, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that makes me sad is I'm, I'll be leaving tomorrow, and now I'm starting to notice I spent time, you know, occasionally at the pubs in, in Komutov and talking to people, and a lot of people could not speak good English, so I was forced to use my very broken check. But I realized last week, when I was at the pub with a few of my students, um, that I can understand a lot more than I realized in the beginning. And now it's such a bummer because I'll be leaving. So all this comprehension that I've developed over these 10 months will, you know, slowly fade away. So Yeah, yeah. Because this is, I mean, this is a language only 18 million people on the planet speak. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the best way to keep it up is through, really through the consistency of being immersed in it. Even if you do practice at home, I feel like it's not the same. No, and it's not connected to any 
any other language in a in a in enough of a way that it would that it's a building block. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely the sad part. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So you, I assume you work with uh, you know Czech musicians and Czech speaking musicians. Mm-hmm. Does that, uh, as far as say production goes, is there any sort of something you have to take into account for for that? Well, uh, and yes. Um, I would honestly say that it's less about English versus the Czech language per se. Uh huh. I would say that. Um, if I'm completely honest, I think one of the things, things that would be said to me a lot, like for instance here, there's a real, there's an incredible history of music here um, in jazz and in classical music particularly. And the gener, you know, there's a generation now of musicians here in Prague or a couple generations of really great musicians that are playing all sorts of different types of music um, pop music, rock music, jazz, you name it, hip-hop, everything. Um, and there's some really, really, really fantastic musicians. However, there's a part of playing music, there's an aesthetic part of it, and that that's something that, um, you know, it's, it's the same reason why I didn't stay living 12 miles outside of Boston this whole time. There are magic. There are magic makers there. There are incredible musicians who live where I grew up and still live where I grew up, and they teach at places like Berkeley, and they make incredible recordings, and they do amazing stuff. But there's something that happens when you keep upping the ante, so to speak. Now, some people are so self-disciplined. Music's a weird one because music is the third language. So even though you might not be able to communicate directly or clearly in English, straight to someone who speaks Czech or their English might be not strong enough to commit clearly in English, you have this third language, which is the great equalizer of music. Mm-hmm. So that really, really helps that situation a lot. Um, but I think as far as developing your aesthetic and your taste and a nuanced approach to doing something, at some point, the closer you get to the sources of what these things are, whatever it is you want to do, like if you want to understand Russian philosophy, you probably want to move to Russia mm-hmm. and study with one of the preeminent thinkers of Russian yeah. philosophy. If you're, sure. if you're getting to that level of nuance about something as opposed to introduction to Dostoevsky 101. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what... I've learned after my time here, there's some musicians here that go out of here and they function internationally. They play with lots of international musicians. They've developed a really wide aesthetic to do a lot of different things, and that's amazing. And then I think, but those really tend to be in the jazz and classical opera, these kinds of worlds. But more in some of these more mainstream types of music, it's different. It's much like... um, Let's pick a place like probably 25 miles out of Tulsa, Oklahoma is not the music hotbed that, um, of Nashville or New York. And that's not saying something about my experience, my level as a player. That's just talking about the level of um, concentration of mm-hmm. it going down where it's like, no, right. that's, 
that's actually really is Dolly Parton sitting over there. Right. It's not someone that looks like her, <laughs> you know, or, you know, you're getting close, you're touching these people. They're, they're, they're there. Um, so there's things that ensue from that that have, that I've had to come around the bend with, which has led me to reconnect with what I did in the beginning, which is teaching. Um, mm -hmm. because when I was 18 through like 23, 24, I mean, I'd be teaching up to 50 students a week, teaching guitar and oh, going wow. to school and playing and teaching workshops and master classes. And, um, that was a big part of the loud noise podcast and I'm developing now, which I'm going to start. I have my first workshop starting in a few weeks, which is, uh, um, it's been about a year and a half in the making. I've been working with a fr old friend of mine who's a performance, a corporate performance coach and developing this, um, program and kind of construct of thinking around how to develop yourself. This could work beyond music, but I'm, I'm doing it through, through the discipline of music mm -hmm. of how to develop yourself in that regard. And music, the last thing I was going to say is just music's tricky too, because music is a communal thing. Um, much the way sports are, whereas if you're more of a visual artist and you're self-directed and you maybe have, um, had whatever pedagogy or training you needed to get to where you are, you can be pretty self-directed and you could live on the moon and do your work, providing sure. you can go places as needed for intake. Yeah. But for what we do, you know, what we do as musicians, I'm not playing just solo by myself. Right, it's I'm more interacting with other people. Mm -hmm. So I need to find my people. Sure. And what, what are some challenges that you've faced, um, whether it was in New York or Nashville or even here, especially working with, you know, just all these different musicians, because I've played in a couple groups in college and high school and jazz ensembles. And every time it's a little different, you know, the chemistry is different. The skill levels are different. The tastes are different. Um, mm -hmm. So what are some challenges that you've had to overcome? Well, I think as, as time goes on, you know, music is really a battle of attrition, like being a professional musician. Okay. Like at a certain point, anyone who's left doing it, you know, at my age, is probably really good. Uh-huh. So then it's about everything else. Okay. You know, it's not about can they do this or can they play in time and right. with good rhythm or what. It's more about are they cool? Like, okay. Is sure. this someone you can deal with? <laughs> you know, because... Right. Um, It's interesting, the, by and large, the most iconic musicians that I've ever gotten to be around or meet share a lot of very similar things in common. One, they're totally cool. Okay. They're completely cool. Like, they're so cool and easy that it's, it's shocking at first. Like, it's like, because that's what comes with someone who's truly confident, mm -hmm. is like, they can share their point of view with you if asked. Right. Or if they feel it will be constructive, mm -hmm. but they don't feel a need to show it to you just to, so they demonstrate right. that they're awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and they're really there to be of service. They're really there to help. And I say this a lot. I say this on a podcast that the music is the language. And this is part of what I'm trying to develop in this workshop is the music is a language and there's a finite amount of things that make up this language. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes how and what do you do with the language that sure. determines who you are 
in the way it was just like we're talking now, we're improvising, we're sharing ideas in it. And that's right. the way it should feel when people have a command of something on a high level, they're able to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the best recording musicians, and I think, you know, and it's not even about names, it's about just these people are transparent. They can do so much. They're there to serve. They're there to serve the music. They're there to serve the artist. Like when it's their music, they do their own thing. But if they're, you know, it's like working for the president. You're there to serve at the privilege. You know, they're lucky. And and this is, I think, what shocks, and I've seen it shock people here. I've seen it shock people in, in smaller places. They're so shocked that because at younger points, and I think even these, I've done it, a lot of really you know, great musicians do this. And younger versions of themselves, they've got more of an ego. They've got more of sure. an attitude. Everybody has it to degree. And some of that's healthy and some of it's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's when you're projecting when it's not really welcomed or helpful, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. So um, people are shocked, like, I got to see so-and-so and, you know, the singer, the singer who doesn't know anything you know, 18-year-old girl, whatever, guy, whatever, and they're telling the drummer what to play, and they don't even know the drummer's played with Sting and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, yeah. and they're like, okay, cool, that sounds like a good idea. We should try it. Yeah. And they were so giving, and and I'm like, mm-hmm. that's why they're playing with these people, because sure. they're open to the possibility of having a contribution to the situation. And that's that to me, that to me is what it's really about. And I think that's the challenge. I think that's the... Um, reaching that level of I have my opinions about what I think is right and wrong but I'm open to helping you realize what you're trying to do because that's why I'm here today is to help you make your thing a reality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not impart your opinions on someone else start your own band dude (laughs) right right (laughs) yeah I read uh, somewhere that you uh, t- you are a big proponent of, as you call it, music by committee or production by committee. And this sounds this kind of sounds like what you're talking about, where it's like um, one let people have their own voices and and don't try to impart yourself onto them. But then also, um, the best music comes from collaborating with other people and getting other insights from that you, maybe you never considered even if you are a you know an amazing musician um i was wondering as far as this you know collaborating with other people since uh technology has made it so easy to collaborate with other people and send tracks and you know play on top of someone else's track has that improved the collab i mean i know it's improved in a sense but has that taken anything away from it does that sort of take away some of the some of the connection that you get from being in a room with someone or actively working with someone, you know, when you're just sending them, emailing them a file and saying, now you put something on top of that. Or does it help because you don't really need to be there and it allows you to collaborate with more people and quicker and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting question. From my perspective, and this is maybe going to be shaded a little bit about me being 48 and not 28 or 18, is um, mm-hmm. I think what's transformed is workflow. Workflow, it's another universe. The um, what I'm able to do, and pull off now is in, it's it was unthinkable when I started doing this. So that's amazing. It's no question. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we're just doing this the way we're doing it, it's incredible. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. 
I'm, uh, you know, my take on this is um, affected by the lens that I'm seeing it through. That, for instance, I'm doing this all the time. But I have to kind of check myself now that you're asking me the question because the people that I'm most commonly doing this with are people that I have been in the room with. Okay. So there's an intimacy. So it's more mm -hmm. like, even though we're not together, I know you don't like string beans. Right. So I'm not going to yeah. give you string beans. Sure. You know, I, I know from firsthand experience what you like, what you don't like, and how you want it to be. So... Um, and that's come from being in the room with them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. so like if a producer I've worked for calls me and says, could you play guitar on this? Or could you, or for instance, most of the mastering work that I have done for me is done for a friend in Brooklyn. Okay. But we're buds. I've known him forever. So he knows I can shoot 10 words to him and he knows what he doesn't even need he knows what to do because he knows my aesthetic sure and mm -hmm. that's been built now could it develop online or virtually i think it could it would just take much longer mm -hmm. um then the fact that we've just you know been in the van together going to god knows where to do god knows what you know it's just sure more immediate. Right. um but i think you know, it was interesting. I was just listening to a EPK today of the um is it is it Dwayne Betts and Devin Allman, the sons of I think so. Dickie Betts, Betts and I think so, yeah. From the Allman from the Allman brothers to so the son of Dickie Betts and the son of Greg Allman. And um they were kind of talking about this whole idea because they had made their whole record in analog at Muscle Shoals in, in um Alabama, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And um the idea of it being a very organic process and coming together. Um, I mean, I think there's real power in that. Um, I have a was in a band for a long time called the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout, which is kind of a soul jazz. Um, great name as well. Was <laughs> <laughs> it kind of a, a soul jazz, part soul jazz, part stacks, like Memphis stacks, mm -hmm. kind of R&B funk. Um, and we made our first record at, this, at Deptone, which is where... Um, some of that Amy Winehouse record was made in Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so archaic the way things are done there, but it's the way real interaction, like you really got to bring it. It's, gotta, it's actually going to happen here and now. And there's always a different immediacy to that, where it's like, you know, you're overdubbing on a track virtually from wherever, and you're trying to ying where someone else is going to yang, but you're right. not... So you tend to um, overgive options and things. It actually takes longer, mm. honestly, than just like sitting in a room. Let's just do it, right? <laughs> and that's what. Yeah, and I, I guess also if you're, you know, if you get a track sent to you and you're adding to it, it gives you a little. I would almost say too much time to be like aware, like trying to perfect it or trying to. <laughs> you have to be very make careful sure of that. Yeah. yeah, you have to be very. And I think careful it takes away that, some like. of the. Uh, some of the chem like it, it removes the chemistry when you're trying that hard to to make sure you get it right on top of a track and exactly you know, correcting everything absolutely that's what jared and i have been trying to do now as he mentioned he's been playing piano for a little while and so i sent him like a, a little jam track it was i think just a couple of chords pretty simple 
and he sent me a few different things and it's so easy to overthink things when you when you just have this track on your computer and you can just you know fiddle around with it for hours on end yeah and and sometimes the first couple things you come up with sometimes can be the best not always but often yeah often and you know going back to that the thing with the um Almond uh, Betts thing I was thinking about what they were talking about is a performance capturing a performance and that's what you're talking about it's like because when you're doing it this way the way you're describing every little thing that is out of place seems at that moment really out of place mm-hmm. whereas if you go back and listen and I don't even really know outside of you having a Hendrix shirt on I don't know what kind of music you guys are into right but I'm going to make a guess that most of the music that's closest to you is performance-based in terms of they're not perfect. There's issues. There's sure. little discrepancies. Sure. There's little things. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. those are the things that are either kind of keeping it real, you know, creating yeah. the vibe, or they're actually inconsequential. Because this is something I often say, too, is um, a great song is indestructible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. Think about so many songs from our, you know, collective, you know, whatever, mind melt of songs that we think are awesome songs. And then you try to imagine what they sound like in right. your head and then go listen to the actual version. Mm-hmm. And they don't really sound the way you remember. And there's a lot of dodgy stuff often going on. And like if you really start to get out the magnifying glass, but none of that mm-hmm. matters sure. because the vibe exactly. is there. And without the vibe, there's nothing happening. Most definitely. I mean, I've had a talk with a few of my friends, um, a good buddy of mine, Ravi, who is a com- visiting composer here at Hamu in Prague right now. He was on our podcast a while back. I remember I played... Um, just kind of a, a very, very cheap version of uh, Lenny by Stevie Ray Vaughan at this little meeting we had for Fulbright. I was really nervous to play because Ravi is a very, very, he knows so much about music. He's got a great ear. He's also a guitarist as well. Um, and I talked to him and I said, yeah, you know, I'm kind of disappointed in my performance. I made some mistakes. And he said, you know, it's not about all the technical aspects and it's technically flawless. If you can capture that feeling or that vibe, you know, and there's, I forget, there's a track by Led Zeppelin, I think it might be Since I've Been Loving You, where you can hear the bass pedal squeak. Oh, yeah, that's a mil- there's a million yeah. of those. Right, and, yeah. but it's kind of cool, you know. Well, it's, it lets you know that it actually happened. Right, it's not just mm-hmm. all this digital robotic, you mm-hmm. know, and that's the thing. There's And there's just something you can't, in my opinion at least, you can't recreate on a computer that you can do with live instruments in a room. Yeah, and and I mean, truth be told... You, you can probably get close. You can get if you know what you're trying to do. You can get really shockingly close. Okay, but it's not the same. And um, and again, you know, not to be pejorative to, you know, more organic, you know, to electronic music or other things. I like a lot of these things too. But even these things, especially older stuff, like even sequencers moved a little. Like there's, there's um, asymmetrical glitchy little things that can happen in these systems that induce randomness and random stuff that also makes it feel a certain way or like, you know, you listen to how someone can, you know, who's really good. Like I remember playing, I played on a record years ago um, where they wanted to add like some more like soul or country or like unexpected guitar elements into this kind of neo-soul hip-hop project. And um, 
the producer was this guy Pucci Bell, who's a great great drummer who plays Marcus Miller and all sorts of people. He's amazing. Oh, cool. Erica Badu and oh, oh wow. Okay. And to watch him use the MPC, which is a, like a drum machine okay. used for now that most of it's done the computer, but the old school way of doing it is on this thing called the Akai MPC okay. 2000, 3000, whatever. And to watch him play this thing, because he's an amazing drummer, but he could play this thing also like an instrument and watch him manipulate it oh, and cool. do stuff. You know, you're just like, but he's playing it like it's an like organic a, thing. Like it's a drum set or mm -hmm. something. Yeah, or you know, he's playing it like it is what it is. He's not trying to make it be a drum set. He's trying to make it be what it is. Right. But he's got such a command over doing stuff with it that it's as valid as, you know, Robert Johnson or something. Right. Oh, cool. Super cool. That's awesome. Uh, the only other question I have is you, you've done a lot of you've done a lot of teaching of guitar. I assume it is. Um, I am not a productive uh, practicer. I I get distracted easily. I don't think I I'm good at focusing in on like specific areas. What are some tips for productive practice practice that you'd have for a novice like me? Sure, sure. And again, going back to the workshop I'm, I'm developing, this is a big part of, big part of the concept around this is because I think everybody struggles with this to some degree, usually to a pretty large degree. And I mm -hmm. think that the good news is you should give yourself a pass because nobody talks about this. Mm -hmm. They talk about everything but this. And this is actually the key to the whole to the whole thing. And mm -hmm. now it's you know, especially for your guys' generation, it's even a um, it's like double fold because you go on YouTube or you go here, and now all of the tactical, tactile, all of the everything is available. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that um, I hear this from friends of mine who teach at university. It's like you know, you come in and everybody's technically burning from the get-go, mm -hmm. you know, from day one. But then it's like, well, what are they doing with it? Like, well, sure. how are, where's their voice? Where's their individuality? What are they saying? What are they trying, you know, and and this is the issue. This is part of the issue. And that's even with people who are good at practicing and developing, them, developing themselves. So my advice, and this isn't necessarily my advice. These are my observations. There's a, there's a book that I think is really powerful. Mm -hmm called um, Effortless Mastery. I have it. By Kenny Werner. Kenny Werner's an amazing jazz oh, yeah. piano player who lives in New York City. I think he might live in New Jersey, but um, he wrote this book about, wow, probably close to 20 years ago. Um, and I haven't studied with him directly, but a lot of my friends have. And um, I think that's a really powerful book. And basically the the long and short of it is is very... It's very it's a very Zen like approach of mindfulness, trying to be in the moment, um, trying to do the least the most. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that really these are the things that really matter. So for instance, for you, you playing with your playing piano, what kind of music are you primarily what what are you passionate about? What do you what type of music do you like? Uh mostly mostly classical. Okay. Classicals this is a, actually even really good because um Arguably, the parameters of um, interpretation are a little more narrow mm -hmm. than maybe some mm -hmm. other right. types of music. But this is a good thing for you. So, 
One of the things I always do with people is a division. There's the actually being able to play, and then there's the information. These are separate things that we've got to assimilate together over time. But for instance, if you, I would take a phrase of a piece you're working on, for instance, and I would play the first note. And this is very much like maybe something maybe someone like Kenny Werner would talk about or other people. And to play the first note of the piece, can you play it? Yeah. Boop. No problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, are you playing it with intention? Because that's a difference. You can play a few notes and passively play them, but then you'll hear B.B. King play them or Steve Ray Vaughan or... Segovia, or it doesn't matter what, well, whoever you're into, play those same you few feel notes. It. Yeah. And it's going to sound like a symphony. It's going to sound like mm -hmm. music. And it's like, okay, wait a second. Why, when I do it, it doesn't sound like that? It's because the intention's not in it. So mm -hmm. then it's like, okay, can I play the first note now with intention, full power? Boom. It's not this note. It's not that note. It's not this note at a different time. It's this note now, this way. And then, okay, now let me practice. The next note. Can I go from the first note to the second note? And do that. And the third note. And, con and you continue from there. Now the thing that sucks about that is in the beginning, it's so painfully slow yeah. to progress. But if you follow that thread through, at a certain point it goes on steroids. Okay. And you develop so much more quickly. So like a guitar example, for instance, say in a different style. Say you're into, say you're into, well, let's use Philly as an example. Say you're into Pat Martino, the jazz guitar player. And it's like, he's very, he can play fast. He can play technical, a lot of like, he can play a lot of stuff. He's amazing. You learn to, you know, you learn like a simple, like a, you take a blues that he played on and you start transcribing the solo. Um, same process. Say it's a one measure lick and you learn the lick okay and now the trick is to play it with the same level of intensity and focus and time and space feel groove swing all of these things that he can do it with and then things that you need to do and this this will help you too is do you record yourself do you record yourself practicing no okay this is really important because if you don't do this what you think is happening in your mind, there's probably a 90-something percent chance that it's something else. Like how many mm -hmm. times have you ever done something in your life, musical or non-musical, where you come and you see your buddies afterwards and you're like, that was a disaster. And they're oh, yeah. like, I've had that before. And they're, yeah. like, and they're yeah. like, no, man, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And then yeah. there's times you come and go, <laughs> that was I, great. That was yeah. killing. I didn't yeah. like, really? That's what you, I don't know, man. Right. So what happens is there's an existential thing that happens that what we think is happening is often not what's actually happening. And the right. only way to know what's happening is to have that third party on your phone documenting it. And even if you're just spot checking or, taking the whole thing, which is why I often record most of my, I record almost every gig. I record myself when I practice and I, I don't listen to the whole thing, but I spot check things because it's the only way for me to know which end is up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because 
you know, be like, man, the band was kind of sucking tonight. And they listen and go, no, I was kind of sucking tonight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or whatever. Right. So I would say that's really important. But the idea is if you can take something very simple, like in this example of a piece you're working on or this Pat Martino thing or whoever, and if you can play a very simple, small thing with all of the nuances of the person who's playing the thing you're trying to get, then you got it. You got the mm-hmm. thing that's important because the notes are not important. What they're do, the way they're delivering it, their accent, the timing, everything—that's where the music is. And if you can get that, then you've basically installed. It's like the Matrix. You've installed that piece of software inside yourself of like, this is what Albert King plays like, or this is what, you know, Jimmy Page plays like, or this is what Emerson, Lake, and Palmer versus Depeche Mode plays. And you've got the thing. And then you just try to keep carrying that thread out. And then the other thing that I think is really must be really, really hard, especially for younger people who don't have access to maybe um, the most supportive teachers in the sense that you should only try to practice. Think of it as like a headlight on a car. To only practice that next 50 yards in front of you because... If you go to, if you stay too close, you're not really practicing. You're playing. You're noodling. You're just mm-hmm. fucking around, basically. Mm-hmm. And then if you're beyond that sweet spot, it's too esoteric. It's not practical. It's not tangible. It's not going to integrate into your playing. So you really want to stay in that thing. Like, okay, you have a gig. I've got to play these tunes. Mm-hmm. So only practice those tunes. Right. And get so deep inside them because there's going to be things, you know, it's C to G to D and blah, blah, blah. And it, this is in a million different tunes. But if you focus on these and really wire it, you're going to bring it through osmosis to other things. But if you're like, I need to work on my superimposing pentatonic scales over other chords, or I've got to work on this, or I've got to get my bebop playing, or I'm going to play slide now, and you're not going to get any real work done. Right. And then everything's just going to take longer than necessary. So I think it's really important. And I don't think you, like the, is it the Pareto principle people, the egg timer thing? I have no like, idea. I've never heard I of think that. The, no, the Pareto principle is the 80-20 rule. There's another thing. There's a, he's another Italian guy. Um, well, the 80-20 rule. So, you know, you get 80% of your result out of 20%, 20% of your of efforts. Work, yeah. But this is something different. It's called the pomodoro method that's what it uh-huh, is okay which is the idea of like using egg timers in like 20 minutes on 10 minutes off but okay. i think if you practice 15 minutes a day and you're like in transcendental meditation level practicing you can really kill it mm-hmm. that's my piano teacher actually tells me that all the time she's like it's not about how long you practice, like she's like, I'd be happy if you only practice 10 minutes a day. But if it were like super focused practicing on those areas that, that we're working on or whatever. And um, that makes sense to me. But it's definitely a challenge that I think comes with time, just being able to focus. One like other that. thing that I think is really important, too. This is about life. And I go through this. This is maybe the. This is the linchpin of my whole life because I'm, I'm like doing so many different things is to try the best you can to never arrive at the task at hand without already knowing why you're coming to the task mm, to do it. Yeah, mm. That's very important. And to have everything you will need to execute the task 
prepared beforehand. So literally, you sit almost like if you had an invisible team of people that have like <laughs> laid out your notebook, laid out your metronome, the piano's tuned, it's ready to like you sit down and you start. Not you sit down and go, I need a pencil. I'm hungry. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now yeah. I need to do, and then you're, where's my book? Oh, that and sounds then, like my head. <laughs> and then it's like, and now you spent, so you're so far outside of what it is you're trying to do. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to send five emails for the podcast, have that written down on a piece of paper the night before you go to bed. I got to email, you know, I got to get in touch with Chad. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to send a thing. We got to upload it. Where's the artwork? Don't start doing this stuff when you actually sit down to do the stuff. Right. Disaster time. Yeah. That's great advice. That's very, very <laughs> yeah, good that advice. Yeah, that was great. I'm going to go back and listen to that a couple times. Right. I had a, <laughs> I had a guitar teacher in undergrad who, who said kind of the same thing. I re, I'll never forget it. I think it was our second or third lesson together, and I was just starting to learn how to play classical guitar. And we, we did a really easy piece. We played, um, I think it was Lagrima by Francisco Targa. And uh, he made me play the first, you know, two, two or three notes, and then he'd stop me. I'm like, but I can play almost the whole piece. And he, you know, would stop me and stop me. He said, okay, play just the first two little notes in sequence and do it ten times for me. And then I did it, and he goes, okay, which note sounded best? I'm like, man, I, I don't know. You know, and he says, you need to listen. And so, you know, I'd play ten of them. And, okay, which one? I'd say, yeah, okay, I think the eighth or ninth or maybe the tenth one. He goes definitely the 10th one. And so we would talk about these things. And I think it comes back to your idea of the intention and intensity yeah. of it. Because when you, especially with music, I, my problem as a guitar player, uh, especially when I was a lot younger was I would get so caught up in my hands, I wouldn't follow my ears. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, you can play everything technically right, but if it sounds like shit, it doesn't really matter how technically right it is. You know, and so, so yeah, that's absolutely fantastic advice. Um, I, I got that a lot from my piano teacher. She's like, you played that essentially, like you played all the notes right, but it didn't, like it sounded robotic. She's like, now actually play it like with some intention, with some feeling. And, and think about it this way, like, it's just, it's words on a page, it's notes on a page. You know, what you're trying to do I mean, and that's what's really great about music like um, early rock and roll, punk rock music, because it's so visceral, mm -hmm. is you're trying to just move energy. Mm -hmm. And like you can move it by lobbing, you know, snowballs, or you can do it in a much more nuanced way. But really, all you're trying to do is make a connection mm -hmm. at a minimum for yourself and at a maximum to as many people as you can reach with whatever it is you're trying to share with them. And that, to me, it, like that's where we want to start with this. Mm -hmm. And then you only need, and this is really important because this is the biggest time saver, is you only need the technical command of the aspects of the language that will be necessary to effectively communicate mm -hmm. what you're trying to do. And it's language teacher... Like, this is the whole ball game. Yep. Because it's like, okay, we're talking about astrophysics and we're talking only to academics about this and there's only a small group of people who conceptually are onto this at this level. Okay, right. well, then we're going to have a much more nuanced conversation about this. Sure. But if you're trying to 
do something that's trying to reach a larger group of people or a specific, you know, a specific group of people in a larger context, it's like, what do you need to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And that is a limitation that you can impose on yourself, which is a good one, because then, you know, often guitar players like B.B. King get referenced because he's playing with the same level of focus and intensity on a smaller, using less pieces of information than someone like, say, John Coltrane is using. But that level of intention that they're using on that set of technical information is the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's through their particular lens or their point of view. And that's why you're equally moved by both of them. Sure. Right. Some people may have a gravitation towards one or the other. But you, when you come across this, you feel like something's happening. You know, the hair is on the back. You're like, it's undeniable. There's no debating that even if it's not your cup of tea, something's happening here. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why you would want to play music in the first place. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Which, which leads me to um, one of my last questions for you, which is, did you have any, you know, you started playing guitar at 12. Did you have any artist or, or specific reason why you gravitated towards the guitar sure kiss and acdc nice okay (laughs) cool (laughs) very cool for me it was uh texas flood by stevie ray vaughn that's a i i think the the first real live music i ever saw was kiss with makeup okay and there was an epiphany at some moment in the first 45 seconds of that going these guys are at work right now right yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to move on to the song of the pod? I do. So how about you tell us about your pick for today, Jared? So uh, for just about every episode, we like to find a song of the pod. Usually we try to find something not American. You know, we'd like to focus on different cultures and music from all over the place. But obviously, since we have a musician on, we wanted to talk about one of your pieces so i um did some searching around and i really enjoyed uh big day uh-huh. and cool. i was watching the uh the session with andy hess and uh ethan eubanks and um the first question i had now this might sound like a stupid question maybe it is how um <laughs> is it a challenge or how do you think of names for songs that don't have lyrics it's good that's a good question because um I think a lot, you know, I was talking to a, uh, a friend who's actually been on the podcast, Amanda Monaco, about that. And she was saying how um, she sometimes, actually, let me strike that because I forget if she said they come before or afterwards. For me, with instrumental, um, with my tunes, I often come up with a working title. Like I've seen a lot of people... Um, you know, a lot of jazz musicians, you just see, like, when they're writing new tunes, it's song number one, number two, and eventually yeah. they get names. But mm-hmm. um, I come up with a working title pretty quickly. And sometimes um, I, I'm a relatively visual person, so I kind of have a picture in my head. So Big Day, for instance, is a song I wrote um, about my wedding day with my wife, Alishka. Oh, cool. So, um, I don't know. It just a boom, dee, doo, 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 doo. I just kind of felt like it's got that something's happening. Things things mm-hmm. are moving at a certain pace, and that kind of came to me for that particular tune. I also tend to okay. write a lot of songs that the working titles end up revolving around food, and then they kind of stick. <laughs> so funky dumplings, 
funky dumplings. That no, was a no tacos in Prague. Yeah, that was one we featured a, quite a while ago on the podcast. Oh, when cool. I had after I saw you in concert, and you told the story about um, one of your friends or one of your bandmates who. It was what they were at their school cafeteria. The dumplings were like hard as rocks or something. You could yeah. throw them like frisbees. Or... Yeah, well, it's, it's actually even more. There was the, the lunch lady who was like, um, you know, the the classic. Uh, I don't even know. You know the the classic, typical what you would imagine. You know, as a young boy, as your Slovakian lunch lady. Uh-huh. You know, right. And she's pretty gnarly. Doesn't seem like she wants to be there. She was sort of, pretty uh... gnarly, I guess. <laughs> right. Pretty gnarly woman. <laughs> and uh, she used to mess with the kids. And she'd be like, you know, the Kinedleks are, the dumplings are pretty, you know, pretty rough. And she'd be like, you know. <laughs> and, you know, the kids are like, ah! You know, it's like a, like a bad movie. <laughs> and, um, oh, my gosh. So we called the song Funky, Funky Dumplings. Nice. So what what is your thought process? I know this is also a pretty broad question, but on a on a tune like a big day, what is kind of your your songwriting process and how does that pan out? It's always the same. Um, there's a great book called The Artist's Way. Okay. Um, by Julia Cameron. Mm-hmm. It was originally. Um, for artists, for visual artists, but it's it's been adopted. A lot of business people get into this book, a lot of tech people. It, it's really become common because she has a thing called it um, in the book called uh, Morning Pages, which is the idea of kind of showing up and just long form, brain, kind of a brain dump, two, three page brain dump okay. every morning. And I think that um, maybe through that, I've kind of adopted it to my writing process, is the idea of and this is something that came out of my writing in Nashville, even if it's writing songs, mm-hmm. is, you know, songs with lyrics, is it doesn't work, this idea of divine inspiration coming down and tapping you and you do something. Right. This is a Very fallacy. This rare, doesn't, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it happens for some people, but this isn't a, pra- this isn't a practical application no, to anything. No, the no, way no. to do something is to show up every day at the easel, the, metaphorically, or out of the well and see if water's going to come out today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to not get too hung up on the outcome and just be like some days stuff happens and some days stuff doesn't. Most days nothing happens. Sure. And if you spend a little bit of time there to make yourself available for the possibility of something happening, fate and, you know, it may all come together in a perfect way. So that's how I look at anything creative and particularly because I write so much music for commercial and TV and film and stuff that you're writing under deadline. I'm often writing under deadline. So it's like, it has to happen now. It's like, there's no, like, we got to send this thing in four hours, five hours. It's got to be written, recorded and produced and off to the next thing. And I think that's a good process because you become become less um, precious about everything. Mm -hmm. And then that way... You look at your cumulative output, and then you see what was good about it, and you just know. And especially the longer you do this, you go, well, "Of course, if man, if ten percent of what I do is good, you're in the top one percent of performers. You're like you're killing it. It's great." So, like for instance, with my music, it stems from my practicing, and usually the first part of my practicing is just 
playing, just getting, you know, kind of trying to make a connection. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if something clicks, if I get an idea or something seems interesting to me, I'll often kind of cancel practicing for the day and I'll follow that thread through. Sure. But if it's kind of like, eh, I don't know, and then I'll move into my what was scheduled to practice. So that's how it's always the same. To me, to me, that almost sounds like moments where I've been teaching and there's kind of this thread we go off on and it's like a teachable moment, right? Where I could stick to my set lesson plan that's been regimented, whatever, or maybe follow this teachable moment and, and see where it can take, you know, the class and the students. And I think that's kind of similar. Totally. Mm-hmm. totally. That's really cool. Very yeah. nice. Um, and then, so, um, not to put you on the spot, but... We, we do love to do things with language here on the Untranslatable Podcast. Are there any Czech phrases that you have that are like your favorites? Uh-huh. Nini čas, čas. Something, uh, don't have time, or no, there's no time. Can you say it again? Nini čas. So there's no time. Strasit čas. I don't know what strasa is. To lose. There's no time to lose. No, uh-huh. Okay. So it's kind of an idiom. We don't have time to lose. That's a good one. Oh. Um... This is a great one. It always. This is a good one because this one. Which means? <laughs> it's basically you're picking or stirring at your food. Uh huh. Like it's um, your grandmother's coal. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> but it's kind of like. But it's a. It's a good one. And one of the first ones that was a good icebreaker. That's actually better for. For older people, mm-hmm. then maybe like if you're trying to, you know, uh, let a, you know, a young woman that you think she's attractive is, um, and this is actually, it's, it's T-cot instead of V-cot, it's uh-huh. informal, yeah. but, yeah. um, Libi semi tevoya na ušnitsa. So, Libi semi tevoya na ušnitsa. Okay. I like your earrings. I li- oh, really? I like your <laughs> earrings. Okay. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. All my, all my friends in Komutov told me the, the phrase I need to say was, uh, mm-hmm. you, have, you have very nice, nice eyes. But yeah, earrings. I feel like complimenting earrings or maybe shoes. Yeah. Always, always a good one. It's a little more. No, but it's great. I mean, Czech language is a... Is a, it's a disaster waiting to happen it's so it's so <laughs> difficult it's so funny how many times i would tell people i was learning czech and the, the first you know the first question they would be like is well wh- why second like people here yeah 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 yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, you yeah get that why oh it's so difficult you shouldn't waste your time Th- you know things like this which i find interesting because when i was learning german i mean germans were asking me why but a lot of times it was more just because they were the Czech why was kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? Germans, it was more just curious of, oh, what's your connection with the German language? Um, and so I thought that was really interesting just to see that cultural difference between learning their language because totally, as you mentioned earlier, it's very important, I think, whatever country you go to, to learn the language, even if you're only traveling for a few weeks, just your basic hellos and pleases and thank yous go a long way. And, and mm-hmm. the smaller of a place you're in, it goes even further. If you mm-hmm. can go into a smaller place here and say, good day, thank you, please, and something like, this is a nice place, or, you know, y- your experience there will have so much more meaning. Oh, absolutely. 
you'll be received so much. It'll be such a better experience. Right. One thing mm-hmm. I've learned here is, and, and this was more trial and error back in, in Komutov, not so much in Prague, was if I would have to go do anything, you know, um, mail something or, or, or whatever. Um, at first, when I first came here, I made the mistake of just, you know, just saying, Mluvetanglitsky. And so what I realize is if I say Dobri Dan, and you know they respond, and then I say you know Mluvim Trosku Chesky, you know I only speak a little Czech. Do you speak English? Then they were much more receptive to try. Whereas if I just go Mluvetanglitsky, they're oh no 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 you know. Yeah, because there's no conditions to it. You're just you're just you know, yeah it's. Totally, you're going to have a completely, di- yeah, completely different experience. And also the, you know, I call it the no fear, the no, like you just got to be ready for shenanigans to ensue. Yep. It's just mm-hmm. you got to be ready at every every moment of, I'm here, I need to get something done mm-hmm. in the real world. Unfortunately, you are the person that's going to help me with it today. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah. together, and except- we're going to get it done. Yeah. It's yeah. not going to be pretty. <laughs> and be comfortable with, with, with making mistakes in front of people. That was a challenge for me when I was learning to speak German. Yeah, totally. And you know what? I think that this is, I mean, I just know it from my own experience, is this is one of the most powerful things you can do for your life is to try to learn to speak. First one, the most powerful thing you can do is travel, even if it's inside your own country, Mm-hmm. And try to meet people, as many people who have a different experience than you do. Mm-hmm. And to try yes. to bring your experience to it and to try to understand some of their experience because then you're going to have a different frame of reference and things are going to be far less abstract or, you know, you're going you're gonna to get it on some level. And then it teaches you that really awkward things can happen and nobody's going to die Yep. You realize mm-hmm. people are more the same than they are different, no matter where you go on the planet. And most people want the same things for one another and for their families and for their friends than you do. And it's the constructs that are built on top of that are the things that divide people. And um, and trying to learn a language and to communicate is such a handicap that it creates humility, incredible humility in you. And then yes. you can apply that humility Absolutely. back when someone's coming to you mm-hmm. and they don't speak English well or they don't speak whatever your native right. language is right. well. And you just become a much more empathetic person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we need, we need more empathy in this world, I think, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of um, problems and... Yeah, I've just realized, too, there are a lot of Americans, you know, I grew up in a fairly small town, and, you know, I remember people being like, oh, those people are speaking Spanish, and they, like, belittle them for broken English, and it's like, well, they speak two languages. You try to go speak with them in Spanish. Sure, you, you know, sure, it's, of course. And they didn't they didn't move here because it was so awesome where they came from. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, it, it's it's just... Whenever you try to take a complex thing and make it, you try to condense it into some sort of simple form, you're not going to get anywhere. Like these much, you know, you got to flip it around. You got to, if you can't have a curiosity, if you don't, if you don't have the ability to self-examine something, if you don't have the ability to really kind of kick the tires and understand something. Right. 
I mean, you're hurting yourself the most. Absolutely. You're hurting others along the, along the way, but you're really hurting yourself. And it mm-hmm. just, it's not self-serving. Right. I mean, it, it only serves to the end of protecting the thing that you're afraid of confronting. Right. Which a lot right. of times isn't that bad to begin with. I think that just comes from closed-mindedness or... Well, it's just because it, it's natural. It's just because if you're not exposed to something, like if you, I don't know, if you've never had, you know, Nashville hot chicken or you've never had sushi or you've never had, like, you just, I mean, it's, or whatever, you just don't know. It's just not in your framework of things you can understand. Right. And that has nothing to do with you because it, it's a it's a product of your environment. And occasionally people get a thirst for these knowledges and they go to try to find these other things if it isn't something that's ingrained upon them or they're exposed to. But by and large, it's, it's, not, it's not a fault of anybody that they aren't exposed to greater ideas because they were kind of kept in some sort of bubble around it where right. it's like, you know, I feel lucky. I mean, I grew up where I grew up, relatively diverse. You know, my parents were super cool in that regard. And then... um you know, going to Berkeley is amazing because it's one of the most culturally and diverse schools and with the, one of the highest international populations of any university in the country. So it just it just seems normal. It's like... Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just such a weird concept to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think that's part of what we try to do here at this podcast is normalize that stuff and show how, you know, it's fun to talk about all these differences between cultures and, and stuff, but at the end of the day, it's it's how not different a lot of us really are. Mm-hmm. Amen. And I, I think we're I think we're doing a good job there. Yeah, yeah guys, <laughs> you guys are killing it. Absolutely. Well, that's all the questions I have for Steve. I don't know if you have any left, Jared. No, that's it. Thank you very much. Those were all my answers. So well, good. We're square. <laughs> good. Perfect. <laughs> Steve, we we really thank you for taking the time to come on our podcast. Um, we appreciate all of uh, what you do with your podcast as well, Loud Noise, all the great music you're putting out. And uh, keep up the good work, and I hope we're in touch in the future. Yeah, right on. And safe travels back home. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks. it.